Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk Make Podcasts. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And let's just start with the good news first. The good news. Which, Christ is risen. <laughs> yes. And we did not walk. We ran today. We so ran. that's good. So that that is a good For longer than we have run in a long time. Well, for longer than you've run in a long time, (laughs) but but yes, so that's good. I mean, I just speak the truth and, and I all through, since we were together last Tuesday, I, I have been sending you texts and saying like, Hey, here's the next run. No mercy, (laughs) (laughs) no mercy Murphy. I know. Sometimes when I say my last time name, people think I'm saying mercy and I'm like, nope, Nope. it's not Mm -mm. me. Nope. Mm -mm. You got me confused with someone else. That would be a good last name. Um, What's astonishing you? So, you know, I've had a long history in ministry, preaching and teaching and lifting up scriptures like um, ask and it'll be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open to you. And um, I love the place where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I love the place that says, um, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. In a couple of years, I, I realized that, you know, I've been preaching and teaching those texts very sincerely and yet not leading the congregation into actually listening, <laughs> listening for what God was saying to us as a congregation. And a couple of years ago, uh, we started holding an annual prayer summit. It's in the fall. What we do is we gather to ask God to tell us what God wants us to do in the upcoming year. And so our our prayer summit, our our fall prayer summit is within weeks, a couple of weeks from now. And we're going to gather without any other agenda, any agenda other than to say, God, we don't know exactly what you want us to do in 2024. So speak to us because we know you know, there, there, there are three ways for us to go about this ministry thing. We can sit around and ask if there are any good ideas and follow good ideas. We can um, sit around and ask if there are any good ideas and then ask God to bless our good ideas. Or we can first ask God to speak to us and then with all of our heart, soul, and strength seek to live out, seek to obey what we think we have heard God said, say. And we've been doing that for the past couple of years, and there's been a tremendous blessing in that. I mean, this past year, we heard outreach. God just wanted us to do outreach, focus on outreach. And so we partnered with an organization that um, provided showers for the homeless that led us to another organization that worked with the homeless. We had a summer camp with those kids, and now we're preparing this Saturday to um, host a huge community fall festival. And it's not just the church doing something small for the neighborhood. We have corporate volunteers from Bank of America coming. We have volunteers from um, the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. We have um all these people coming from different parts of our community to serve the neighborhood. And we are simply 
welcoming folks onto the campus. And I'm astonished because it's none of these things are in our budget. We're in our budget. Uh, we are paying for very little. And all of these resources that are in our city are coming to us and through us into uh, to those who who need them in our neighborhood and it is it's marvelous in our eyes and it is it's humbling it is a reminder that um too often both i think in life and in ministry we just have this attitude that it's up to me and i've got to do it and if i don't do it it won't get done and we forget those places that say things like, be still and know that I am God. Yeah. Um, Too often we unconsciously, like we don't, we don't believe this theologically, but we walk out this idea of God can only do what I'm capable of. God is limited by my resources. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, again, because of the road that I have been blessed to walk on, not a road I chose, a road that the Lord dragged me down kicking and screaming <laughs> of, you know, a long season of just losing my illusions that, oh, if you do the right thing, it'll always work out for you. Or if you do the right thing, you know, the institutions around you will co-sign and support. Um, but coming to a place where you say, okay, well, we're going to do what's faithful without really an expectation of any reward other than we're going to do what's faithful. And then being astonished to realize, oh, duh, <laughs> we are not asking God to bless our agenda. We are trying to reorient ourselves to God's agenda. And when we are faithful to God, God is faithful to equip us for what God's calling us to. And I think, um, you know, it's hard. I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus is not throwing shade at people with power and resources. But one of the reasons when he's saying like the last shall be first and the first shall be last is that it's, it is, e- it is easier to trust God when you have no other options. Um, and so it's hard to, it, it, it's hard to risk when you have more at stake. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it is just really beautiful. I mean, just to name again that you were in a season of, you know, being a smaller congregation and having no resource to do this and hearing God say, do outreach and being like, okay, God, that doesn't make any sense because how can we do it? Feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Right, and like okay, outreach for go. what? Like, you know, and, and just to be like, all right, well, it's not really my job, you know, to understand it's my job to be obedient. And I mean, I think obviously we're always going to love God with our mind. And so if God were to say to you, like, go rob a bank, you'd be like, well, I'm going to interrogate that. Th- that doesn't sound like it's coming from the Lord. But when the Lord calls you to do something that is in line with the values of the kingdom of God, and you think, well, not now, not me, we're not ready. I, th- I think you have to um, interrogate those um, assumptions. I mean, it's just all a matter of like, what does it look like to be reasonable in the context of the kingdom of God? Yeah. And we are, you know, like a lot of congregations in a really hard season, fewer people, fewer resources. And, you know, these times have really been humbling 
for the mm-hmm. church. And, you know, the temptation is to uh, pine for the good old days yep. or to get angry about the way things are right now. Um, but we at Dry Church keep coming back to that place um, that says that God does exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask, hope, or imagine according to God's power that is at work within us. Mm-hmm. Like God's power is at work within us. And one of the things I'm challenged to do, not simply as a pastor and leader of a congregation, but as a human being, a disciple of Jesus, is to do the same thing in my own life. Because I'm yeah. realizing yeah. how often, not only do I lead the church in a way that says, okay, we're going we're gonna to go with my good idea, but I, I live my life that way more than I want to admit. Yeah. 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 So what's astonishing you? Uh, I, I, you know, I am, I'm not really in a season of astonishment <laughs> to just be completely, um, or appropriately transparent. I'm not in a season of astonishment. I'm in a season of feeling my feelings and also, being aware that this is a season and it will pass. And, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about, um, the, what, you know, that one of the fruits of the spirits is, is long suffering or patience. And so they're just, are, are times when, um, discouragement is real and, uh, you really, have long seasons where you look around and go like, what am I doing? And you know, does any of this matter? And the truth is, um, if Jesus isn't risen for the, from the dead, then I am an idiot and a fool and I've wasted my life. And if Jesus has, then I'm not. And there are some seasons where it's just very easy to see and feel resurrection power at work in your neighborhood and in the world. And then there's other seasons where like, it's just not. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely in a not season, like just what is confronting me all the time, you know, in all kinds of spaces. It's just like everything that's wrong and everything that's lacking and, you know, all the reasons that, um, you know, it's just a tough season. And I think part of being, of having right expectations and being mature is just being able to accept it and not, not numb it and not deny it. Um, and also, you know, (laughs) Just know that, like, okay, I've I've had lots of seasons that weren't this, um, and I and I've I've been in similar places before, and I'm glad that I didn't give up and walk away, and so I I I feel secure about that, but also just, you know, it's it's just a really discouraging season, and so um, I think it's important on the one hand, like it's hard to talk about that because you don't want people to feel uh like they need to 
take care of you or, I mean, you know, I mean, then that's where you get to that space of like, well, what does it mean to be the pastor of a community, but also be a member of the community? And how do you show up and be a real authentic person, but also not expect people in the congregation to um, meet all of your emotional needs? Like, what does it look like to be a leader? And so to understand that um, there, there are th- pieces of vision and um, truth that it's your job to give. And so you, you know, of course there, nobody, not everything is reinforcement, right? Like not everything um, is sometimes, you know, you, you are um, in a different place than, so I mean, it's just, so it's just a hard season. And I think it's important um, to, to name that occasionally. And also to say like, I'm under no, I am under no illusions. Like there's a particularity to what's difficult and discouraging in this season of ministry in my life and at the place where I serve. And also if I were doing different kind of work, I would have a different kind of season of discouragement. And if I were serving a different community, I would have a different kind of season of discouragement, but I would still have one, right? Because it's just part of being a human being that doesn't numb the world out. And so I just think, um, yeah, like it's not that the same things that can move me to awe in other seasons, I mean, they're still there. I just, I just don't have the same capacity to you know, I mean, it's just, it's just a discouraging season and, and that's okay. (laughs) Like that's okay. Um, and, and goodness knows. And I also think the other tricky thing is, and then I'll stop. Like, it's hard because you also, you know, you live inside your own body, inside your own world. And so you, when you are, are feeling a certain kind of way, when you're struggling, there's a sense of, being aware of also how, how blessed you are and how just good and generous God has been to you and the hedges that God has put around your life. And it's hard sometimes to feel entitled, to feel, you know, to, to feel discouraged, you know, thinking about just, you know, people in my immediate life who are, um, struggling with things that I would objectively say are, are so much um, like are, are unfair and unjust and so much greater. And also not to mention, you know, things that are happening in other parts of the world that we're so aware of. And it's really hard because you want to sort of say like, well, I feel bad, but I shouldn't feel bad. I mean, it's that this double level of like, you have your feelings and then you have your guilt over your feelings. And like, I should feel nothing but grateful and hope filled and joyful all the time because of all of the blessings that are in my life. And I think just to, you know, as they say, not to should all over yourself and just say, you know, I, and I have a, a friend um, who's just a real gift to me who, who is, um, really, um, in a very difficult and challenging season and, and occasionally we're not occasionally, we talk a lot, but occasionally she'll be like, how are you? And I'm like, I just can't even talk to you about this because it just, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> because I just feel stupid in the context of everything that you're dealing with. And she's really, you know, great about saying like, no, I mean, if we're friends, like just because I'm in a hard season doesn't mean that you're in an easy season, right? Like it just, it is what it is. And I think, um, you know, it's just, it's difficult. Like some seasons things come easy and some seasons they don't. And, um, I think the trick is while always being open to the fact that every season comes to an end, but also, you know, knowing that just because something is hard, that doesn't mean that it's the end of the season. Right. And I think sometimes we just think like, well, this is hard now. So (laughs) that's my alarm clock times up. And the reality is I think sometimes, you know, on the other side of that season of deep discouragement and struggle is where there's real, there's real sweetness and, and fruit. So, um, so yeah, so that's hopefully appropriate amount of transparency. Years ago, I read a book, um, entitled despair. It was written by, uh, Louise Bringle. And in it, she compares, um, the philosophy of Soren Kierkegaard, the 16th century Danish philosopher who has been nicknamed the Gloomy Dane. Kierkegaard is 16th century? Is I think he's 16th. I mean, I or, believe you. I'm just I could ignorant. be wrong about that. I'm going to look it up. Look it up. <laughs> but, also, but she compares him to parts of uh, Alice Walker's uh, The Color Purple. Yeah. And then um, also... Um, uh, it's kind of the dark night of the soul yeah. passages of scripture. And it's, it's a fascinating read uh, for someone who is uh, just struggling in a hard season, struggling through a hard season. And um, I remember, you know, one of the things that that book helped me with um, as a person who uh, finds himself in um, a place of discouragement and shadow um, fairly often Mm -hmm. in those times do you turn to God or do you turn someplace else right and that that makes all the difference it's not it's not that that place you know, at first, I, I always thought that that place was an unfaithful place. That yeah. if I found myself um, discouraged or weary, that that meant somehow that I was being unfaithful. No, it's really about what you do in those times of discouragement, even despair. And I'm reminded, you know, we just finished this uh, sermon series going through Hebrews 11, and Moses is always fascinating to me because he has this moment where the Israelites are caught between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea and God tells him to stretch out his hand and he does and the sea parts is a wall of water on either side and the Israelites cross the Red Sea and when a Pharaoh and his chariots try to cross the the water closes in and they're drowned and then not long after that, I mean, just this great moment of triumph, right? right? The leader, the, the the liberator of God's people in the power of God is this great moment. And not long after that, Moses goes to God 
and says, these people are about ready to stone me right, right, <laughs> because right, right. we're out here in this wilderness and they are thirsty and I ain't got nothing for them to, to drink. Right. And they are in the wilderness for 40 years. Like after this great moment of triumph, now you have 40 years of wandering and complaining and struggling in the wilderness. That is an encouragement to me because if Moses yeah. went through that, then... Why shouldn't I have those seasons? Well, and I think uh, when it's interesting to think about wilderness, because even within the scripture, that is remembered differently. Like that season sometimes is remembered as like one long period of frustration and failure and all they did was complain and it was awful. And then I forget whether it's Jeremiah and Ezekiel and they remember it differently. And I can't remember. I always get them confused. But it, the other remembers it as this like sweet, idyllic time when the people were relying wholly on God and, and God was providing and they weren't, you know, and, and, and it was this, this honeymoon period. And so I do think, you know, and, and to your point, it's, it's this sense of knowing that even, and I have my friend, our friend Elizabeth has said, like, you know, the other way to think about shadow is to think about it being like in the shade of my right hand, right? Like what's the difference between shadow and shade? And, and it, it really is to some extent, <laughs> how, how you perceive, you know, how you perceive it. And I think, you know, to, to walk through a season of, of difficult time and to know, well, this is real and this is how I feel. And also there's a, there's a larger narrative that this is a part of, and that gives me, um, a hope that is sustaining and comforting and not, um, you know, there, there's, there's a great phrase and I need to look it up before the, next month's sermon series about like that sometimes hope can be like a fish hook. Like sometimes when you're going through something's really hard and someone tells you to have hope and it just feels like one more place of pain. Um, well, at the end of Hebrews 11, the writer, the preacher of Hebrews says, after listing all of these wonderful old Testament saints and uh, great things that God did through them says at the end they did not obtain the ultimate thing, the ultimate promise that had been given to them right. by God because God was waiting um, for us to be perfected along with them. So there's some sense that, yes, our hope drives us into the future, and we may not live to see the thing that we're holding out hope for, but it's because... It's for someone else as well. It's for someone who is coming along after us. Well, and I also think like that's, you know, thinking about the wilderness time is really helpful and and how quickly liberation, what felt liberatory. Because when, when the people got out on the other side of the Red Sea, I mean, there there was dancing, there was celebrating, there's Miriam's song and Aaron's song. And so the people experienced this as the beginning of something wonderful and wonder-filled and new and experienced it as liberation. And then not long after the people experienced like deep terror and um, grief for the loss of familiarity of the life that they knew. And I think the reality is like um, disorientation is profoundly pain filled, even when what we're being called into is ultimately um, good and life filling. Like it's a, it's, it is also terrifying because we are so unmoored from our understanding. And I think if we, if we are 
leading faithfully, uh, I think that we are calling people into a relationship with God that will make them both more in love with this life and this world and also more uncomfortable, like, you know, less acclimated to it. And, and, um, and there's real tension there and it is uncomfortable. Um, and I think for so long, many of us were marketed Christianity as like the secret sauce that will help you win at life. Like there's a church right up the street from here and I pass it all the time. And like their billboard, I write about it in this book, which I feel like is never going to be published, but whatever. But like their, their billboard is like Jesus, it's something like life with Jesus is better because Jesus is better at life. And I think like that is both, I think, true and also really unhelpful because that slogan doesn't give you any sense of how to expect and persevere through a season of disorientation. Well, the assumption is that we know what better the is. kind of life that Jesus is better at living, right? Mm -hmm. And that, and that what we perceive of as better is what Jesus is going to give us. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, if you keep thinking about the, the liberated Hebrew slaves, you know, what they probably would have chosen for themselves was a, a, a life just like Egypt, where one of their own was the Pharaoh. And so being called into a better life was also you know, so different and disorienting. It didn't, it didn't feel, it was better, but it didn't feel better. And I think that, you know, it shouldn't really surprise us intellectually to know that when all of our expectations and all, and are shaped by a culture that we all agree is fallen, <laughs> then we, we should expect that the life that God calls us to that is abundant and that is good and that is better won't always be attractive to us and won't always feel better. And that's why it's a narrow road, the way of Jesus. So anyway, that's, uh, what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about how to stay sane uh, in these times when there's so much going on in the world and so much, um, so much on the news. Uh, you know, I'm very conscious as a parent about the images, you know, my nine-year-old sees, but I'm also very aware that I need to be on top of the images that I take in constantly. And with the um, Israel-Hamas war and, um, you know, just everything that's going on in the world, I have decided to um, be very careful about how much I engage, how emotionally. And, and see, I'm I'm struggling because the the tension is as a as a as a church leader, as a leader of people, as a person who stands before a congregation every Sunday and says, "Thus says the Lord." there's the impulse to say a lot. But on the other hand, in a world that is saturated with information, 
good and bad, true and false. I think there is great power in sometimes temporarily being silent. Even when you have thoughts, Mm -hmm. you have feelings, you have opinions, sometimes you just need to wait. Um, And that's where I am. I'm, I'm trying to be very measured and nuanced and helpful when I speak about things that are happening in the world, not just uh, Hamas and Israel, but um, like our, our national politics. I'm very aware both um, conversations in my home and conversations at church that there's so that, that, that there's there's this knee-jerk reaction within the church to speak as if we automatically know God's mind, right? So uh, with Israel and Hamas, um, one of the things that just kind of irritates me is immediately you hear preachers talk about the book of Revelation and here comes the Antichrist and we know exactly what chapter and verse this is, and this is going to happen, and that, and I'm like, nope, nope, I, I, I think we need to be still and pray, um, at least for me, that's where I am, so uh, what I'm thinking about is when to speak, how to speak, how much to engage, how much to let in, and how much to conclude this too shall pass. Like the main thing is the church's mission. In the scriptures, you don't find the Apostle Paul speaking much about what Caesar is doing or what the Roman Senate is doing. Um, he, he, is, he, is on a, he is focused on the mission. So, yeah, I, I don't have the answer, but that's what I'm wrestling with. Well, I... Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think I probably should always talk less than I do. And I just, I also think that it's tough because if we, if we don't talk, other people certainly are and are certainly talking in the name of Jesus from platforms that have much more cultural authority than either you or I do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in silence, people are going to assume that their pastor is co-signing with certain, um, with certain voices that, you know, I re- I rarely do. And I do think also that we, we live in a culture that um, teaches people so uncritically to buy into a dualistic narrative of there are good guys and there are bad guys and that when certain people do violence it's an atrocity and when other people do violence it's justice and so I think that it's really important 
if we're going to teach people how to be peacemakers, that we have to be able to help people have the ability to discern what's true and what is a beautiful and compelling lie. And I think particularly when it comes to Israel and Hamas, and like we were saying earlier on the run, you know, it's, it is. Let it be noted that we talked and ran at the same time. I know. I had to adjust our, our that should have been our astonishment (laughs) um, (laughs) that, you know, there, you know, in the, um, the central African Republic in the Congo, I mean, in Haiti, I mean, there are places, I mean, every tragedy is unique and deserves its own space for lament. And it is true that the suffering and death of some people merits much more, not attention and lament from the Lord, but, but from, you know, the media machine that tells us where to look and when, who matters. And so I think, you know, but, but I also think what is true is that in implicit and explicit ways, what's happening in the Middle East is being framed as a holy war and is being framed as a conflict between good and evil. Um, and, I think it's really important as people of faith that we both disrupt that narrative um, intentionally to say that the slaughter of the innocents in Israel and in Palestine is, is, is a tragedy and that one life doesn't matter more, doesn't, isn't worth more than another in the Lord's eyes. And, and also to make it even more offensive and out of line with the narrative because the story of Jesus doesn't fold neatly into the story of the powers and principalities of the world. Like the slaughter of the guilty is a tragedy in God's eyes because we are to see people who are caught up in demonic ideologies. And I would say of violence that these are people who we ought to see as the garrison demoniac and not as you know, a, 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 a human animal, as I have seen people in, in high positions of authority in, in both the Israeli and in the American government call Palestinians. And I mean, I appreciate the way you frame it as like, this is, this is a conflict between Israel and Hamas, not between Israel and Palestine. And I, I also think like the way to be a peacemaker and this is why nobody wants to be a peacemaker, the way to be a peacemaker is not to pick a side. Like peacemakers don't pick sides. And that is a, you know, we can we can say quite clearly, this is the way of the Lord and these are not the ways of the Lord. And you can't, you, you can't make peace with human weapons. But I think the reality is lots of folks who are involved in these conflicts and are propagating these simple and attractive narratives are not interested in making peace. They're interested in um, holding on to power and to ending um, overt violence. And I think it's really important for people of faith to, to disrupt the narrative and complicate the narrative. And to be really clear, like there are so many Jewish voices and Palestinian voices saying, hey, this, you know, Palestinian voices saying these 
attacks against Israelis are not how we achieve Palestinian liberation. And I and I was following some, you know, Palestinian journalists inside and, you know, people are saying like, well, how come Palestinians, you know, this is an ignorant question, but like, how come Palestinians don't do peaceful demonstrations? And they were saying, hey, two years ago, Palestinian young people in the Gaza staged a huge um, peaceful walkout and two weeks sit out and they went out into the sea on like dinghies and like they did these things and the world just didn't cover it. And so you you get mad. I mean, rightfully so. You question like we can't make, why does one side make peace through violence without recognizing that A, both sides are doing this and B, if we don't, if we don't learn to listen to the voices that are waging nonviolent campaigns for peace, if we don't learn to follow those voices and to give them authority, then those are not the voices that will have voice. I mean, like leaders are created by the number of people who choose to follow them. And so if we are not seeking out the voices on both sides of the border wall who are showing us a different way to make peace, then we are not, you know, we're not going to have the leaders that we say we want because we keep following people who ride in on war horses instead of the people who are willing to lay down their lives and look like idiots and walk in on a donkey and people being like, what kind of loser is that? It's a person who's showing you that there's another way to create righteousness that's not through domination and, 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 um, force. And, and so I think, you know, it's really, it is really important, especially when then you see Christians, you know, on different social media platforms or publicly saying like, well, is this the end times? Is this a revelation prophecy? It's really important for us as pastors to be able to say friends, <laughs> like the gospel is powerful and people are trying to co-opt and corrupt that power for their own agenda. And you, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, have got to take responsibility for renewing your mind in Christ enough so that you can recognize that anyone who is celebrating the slaughter of people as a sign of the coming of the kingdom of God is not worshiping the Prince of Peace. Like it's just not. And, and I, I was um, in my office having a, a conversation with a member of the congregation who just wanted to talk about scripture and it was so delightful um but they were saying i read revelation and i i just that's got that's i just think it's a poem and i was like yes you and every credible biblical scholar which is not to say it's not true it's to say it is a symbolic vision of what spiritual warfare looks like between who? Between the spiritual realm of God and the earthly empire of Rome, of Babylon, of Egypt, of fill in the blank, of, of all of the forces of evil that nobody ever shows up outside of a, you know, Austin Powers movie and says, I'm here to be an evil overlord. Everybody comes to say, I am here in the name of righteousness to destroy evil. And we have to be able to recognize that that's not the way. And I, and I again, well, not again, I will just say, I know that I am an American and I understand that I am a white American. And I understand that the country I live in and the country that has given me so much power and privilege 
was built on the oppression and genocidal practices and injustice of so many people. And so I don't have any, I, I, I speak from the bottom of the pile of failed people who fail to live up to their own values. And I, when I several years ago was given the gift of going to Israel, Palestine with the peacemakers ministry from the Presbyterian church USA. And I went and I was like seven months pregnant with Callie at the time. And it was really interesting when we got there, like the PCUSA historically, and I'm grateful for this has has tried to really listen to the voices of the Palestinian people um, and advocate for their basic human rights um, and and in ways that sometimes have have really complicated the relationships between the PCUSA and Jewish organizations and the PCUSA has I think as the denomination has tried, and not, I'm not saying well, uh, to, you know, to, to be a faithful friend, both to the Palestinian people and to Jewish people around the world, and to apologize for historic harms that the PCUSA has perpetrated against Jewish people as well. But when we, when we went to Israel-Palestine, first of all, initially, we weren't going to talk to any Jewish people at all until somebody on the trip was like, hey, we can't be a peacemaker trip if we're only going to talk to Palestinians, even if the Palestinians are, and and they are, I think, underrepresented in um, American culture, like we still need to talk to our siblings on both sides of this conflict so that we can understand. And, you know, you walk through, we went to the Holocaust Museum, the Yad Vashem, and you walk through the Holocaust Museum at seven months pregnant like it is a, I mean, it's obviously a challenging and important thing to walk through at any time, but particularly in that way. And you, you walk out and, and it's really interesting, the design, you walk in and it's bright and as you, and it is arranged chronologically through the context of the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And so you, you come in and it's just like normal lighting. And as you keep walking through the exhibit and you can only walk through it in one way, like it just keeps getting darker and darker and darker and darker until you come out at the very end, like literally it's like almost completely dark and you come out at the very end and you're in this room and it's just like floor to ceiling windows looking out over the land. And it's this very powerful embodied rev like um communication of like the only light and hope and promise that certainly the people who 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 made the museum is like the physical land of Israel is our only hope <laughs> that is our only hope of escaping this fate and that we owe it to all the people who did not survive to hold onto this land so that never again. And I think like to be able to hold space for the reality of that lived experience 
and also know that that desire and again this I mean plenty of both Israelis and Jewish people say we we can't you know we cannot hold on to the land by carpet bombing Palestinian children um and but I also don't want to act like I don't understand a that you know the way that the United States responded in to 9-11 and I remember at the time walking through that and talking with people and going like let's just be so for real if people were crossing the Mexican border if suicide bombers were crossing the Mexican border the United States would build a wall so fast it would make our heads spin and now of course we are building a wall (laughs) and not you know so I mean just to understand like I'm not saying that I don't understand my own human need to really believe that the only thing that brings peace is violence. Like I've been socialized in this same world. So I don't have any sense of moral superiority or judgment, but I just also read scripture as Jesus telling us that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that these are, that there's a way to make peace and it requires an even deeper vulnerability for ourselves and our children than, than mil, you know, military um, force. And, and to hold on to that, I mean, I just think it has to be named that right now there's a blockade of not just fuel, not just food, but water to, to a, to a, a, a settlement of more than 2 million people who are surrounded by the sea and a, and a wall. I, I mean, I don't know what, like what the possible end game of that can be other than catastrophic annihilation of maybe the guilty, but also the innocent anyway that I I mean I get that I don't know like I don't know how we we can't make it seem as though the only real things are the things that are happening in the Middle East and also how do we move I, I don't know how we hold all these things in tension together Yeah, so um, not to. <laughs> and now we got to go pick up our kids. <laughs> give an abrupt uh, subject change, but what are you preaching on Sunday? Uh, so we are going into the last week of You Heard It Wrong, and I think I want to preach on um, Philippians 4 13 and what the promise is not and I can what do it all is. All things through Christ. Right. And I I think, you know, in the context of all these conversations, this is really important. Like, I believe that. Um, And I think it's really important that we allow God to name the all things (laughs) and and not our um, broken, sinful, and fallen hearts. Um, So that and then moving um, into an All Saints 
celebration the following week and then um, a sermon series on hope, which I think understanding, having a robust and mature understanding of hope is essential if we're going to live our lives trusting in the power of resurrection and not, because if it's not hope, it's expectations and our expectations are formed by the world. And so we cannot be God's people if our lives aren't grounded in the hope of Jesus. Um, so what about you? Yeah, I think hope is the central word for our time. I, I don't know if there's another biblical word that's more important right now than hope. And you have a great definition. What's your definition? Hope is confidence that the future will be good because God is faithful. Right. And I think so many of the times we turn away from our own values because we just say like, well, I do believe that this is better. But I think that if I walk out these values, everything is going to collapse and we're going to fail and it's going to be a disaster. So I can't walk them out. I need to do something that I can, that will lead me to have an expectation of goodness in the future. Like I expect the future won't, like I, I trust God with my life after death, but my life on this side of the grave, I think the values of the kingdom of God will lead to failure and ruin. Yeah. The scripture says that hope is an anchor for the soul, but I also say that hope is like a buoy in the ocean so that no matter how hard the wind blows, uh, no matter how great the storm, no matter how big the wave that crashes upon us, that pushes us down underneath the surface, that hope always causes us to float back up to a place of peace and joy. And, and that's, that's the operation of hope within us. What are you preaching on? I'm preaching, well, we're hoping to have Lots of guests on Sunday because of our yeah. uh, community fall festival on Saturday. And so um, I feel led to uh, preach um, uh, a message that I've preached before uh, from uh, Jonah, uh, that familiar place of the prophet and the whale. And he gets um, vomited up on the shore um, after being disobedient and um I really want to talk about um, how God helps us to overcome our past. That um, you know, we we've all had uh, times and seasons of great failure. But what I love about Jonah's story is that um, <laughs> Jonah gets—he not only gets a second chance, but God does not withhold anything from Jonah. He gets the same assignment. Mm -hmm. God does not um, constantly remind Jonah of his failures. Like it says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and it's the same assignment. Right. And God doesn't say now, well, no, this time don't screw it up like you did the last time. Right. right? And so a fresh start with God really is a fresh start. And so I am trusting that that word will be um, fresh water for people who are in worship on Sunday. No, I love that. I mean, because that, the connection between the all things is like what we can do through Christ are all the things that God has called us to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, after Jonah's failure of belief or will or whatever you want to call it, God got him right back to the place where God was calling him to be 
in doing the ministry that God had equipped him to do, that he doesn't get demoted, sent down to the minor leagues. Right. He doesn't get benched. He, you know, because God meets us where we are and we're so, um, so, uh, you know, we live in this world where we're always in competition and we're always being ranked and we're either being punished or rewarded. And we just have a hard time understanding that we serve a God who meets us where we are and that we're not, we don't have to follow Jesus and manage this existential anxiety of like, well, is this my last chance? Is this my next to last chance? Am I, you know, because Jonah's not through messing up. <laughs> no, no. And, and, and neither are we. Correct. And the people around us. So, yeah. Well, thank you all for listening. That came out extra Southern for <laughs> someone who is not a Southerner. Thanks for listening. Hold on. <laughs> what? You're from Kentucky. I am from Kentucky. That's Southern. Mm, I disagree. I think that I am a Midwesterner. Growing up in Kentucky, I was told that I was Southern. And then moving here to North Carolina, what I have discovered, both through, like, you know, silly things like my hatred of okra and sweet tea and also just (laughs) sensibility in general, is that especially, like, Louisville, where I'm from, it's just a Midwestern city. It is just more aligned with Midwestern culture, I think, than than Southern culture. And I know, like, everyone points to the Derby. That's not daily life. And so I, that's sort of cosplay okay. and marketing. And so, no, I used to think I was Southern until I moved here. Okay, now fine. I think I'm Midwestern. And I think if I moved deeper into the South, I would probably think that North Carolina was essentially Midwestern. So, mm. anyway, you can send all the letters of complaint to Yolando Hinton, who is the pastor at Derrida Presbyterian Church, where they worship at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can check out their website, which is uh, www.deridachurch.com. And you can check out their uh, podcast and YouTube channel. Um, Look at the Podbean website to get the Derrida Church podcast or look them up on YouTube. You'll see a dove. The, The graphic is of a of the um, stained glass dove, right? Yes. And uh, you can listen to Yolanda's messages, which are definitely worth listening to. How nice are you? I mean, it's just the truth. I'm not really nice. That's, I've got no mercy. So you should just take it. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove, you can check out the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to um, the YouTube channel or our podcast and find, um, just look for the, there's lots of groves out there. So look for the one with the tree and the roots. And, the green uh, tree. The green tree and the roots. And uh, we were glad to talk and uh, we'll do some more next week. I, that was a weird ending. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks.